Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're going to talk about something that we touch on a lot, but I think we've never fully confronted. Who do we think Jeremy Corbyn really is and what does he want? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. So to tackle this difficult question, I've got Helen Thompson with me and Chris Brooke. And Helen and Chris and I and other people on this podcast have definitely circled around the Corbyn question a lot. I think it's also true, while we've been doing this podcast, we occasionally get um, people telling us that we're not doing it right. And one of the criticisms that's always stayed with me is something that someone said quite a while before the 2017 election, which was that we didn't take Corbyn seriously enough. And I can only speak for myself. I think that's fair. I think it was true that there was a tendency to treat him as a kind of accident because he is the accidental leader of the Labour Party. I mean, we know the circumstances in which he entered the race and then won were, in some sense, accidental. But I don't think anyone could say now that there's anything about his leadership that does not deserve to be taken seriously. It also reminds me a bit of the period before Tony Blair became Prime Minister, when there was a lot of questioning of what he really stood for. Who was this guy? Obviously, we're talking about a very different space on the ideological spectrum, but some of the questions were similar. He was quite hard to fathom. We might come back to Blair at the end, because I'm not sure we still know what Blair stood for. But with Corbyn, this week, we have seen another version of the who is the real Jeremy Corbyn question being run through the press, which relates to his activities in the 1980s. It turns out that there are files on him relating to the Czech embassy back then and meetings that he had with a Czech quote-unquote diplomat. And in Daily Mail or Sun terms, this is evidence that he was some kind of traitor and one or two, I think, slightly intemperate Tory MPs have tweeted words to that effect and then in one case have had to withdraw them. And Corbyn has responded. He responded very robustly with doing this on Wednesday morning. On Tuesday night, he responded on YouTube with a short film, very Jeremy Corbyn film. The delivery, I thought, was terrible, but the conviction was real, in which he said that this was another example of the way in which the press in Britain, these unaccountable, tax-avoiding, tax-haven press barons, were trying to smear him. It was an old-fashioned smear, and so on and so on. So one of the questions about this, before we get on to a wider question about where does Corbyn really stand on other issues, including Europe, one of the questions about this is, I think, it doesn't seem to be doing him any harm. Who knows? But this stuff seems to just float off him. Does it float off him because there isn't anything in this story, actually? He's describing it as a kind of James Bond fantasy. It was you know, very low-level stuff, and all he was doing was having tea with someone from the Czech embassy. Is it because there's nothing in this story, or is it because there's something about Corbyn's past which means that nothing sticks to him? Because one of the ways in which he is the accidental leader of the Labour Party is that until almost the moment he became leader of the Labour Party, he was never a future leader of the Labour Party. In fact, he was never going to be a power broker in the Labour Party. So it didn't matter so much what he did before then. I think that we've got to separate out two issues in a way here. And the first is is this 
let's call it the Czech question. I have to say, I find the idea that anyone in Soviet or Eastern European intelligence would have had any interest in Jeremy Corbyn in the 1980s quite bizarre, I mean, just given who who he was. So I think that this is not a story that sounds intrinsically plausible. Although just to say, we're talking about the dying days of the Soviet Empire, and my sense is they probably would be grateful for any friends they had at that But point. if it were, it would be inconsequential. That's what I'm saying. It's, uh, and so I think that the stories about him and the IRA, there are something something else. And that I think that it is just incontrovertibly true that he was a IRA supporter in the 1980s, in the first part of the 1990s. But I think the reason why none of it sticks is because the world changed really significantly in the 1990s, both in respect to the Cold War and in respect to the the Irish question. So it's not really that it doesn't stick on Jeremy Corbyn. It is as that for lots of people who are under the age of 40 and some people over who don't have particularly historically minded minds, is that's another world now. It doesn't exist. So saying Jeremy Corbyn was this, that or the other in the, in the 1980s belongs to a past that a lot of people simply don't understand. And I think you can see that he understands on the Irish one, or the IRA one, I should say, quite implicitly that it would be an issue if people could remember in the sense that he has told a counter story about it that he was working for peace i mean i think that's absolute nonsense if you look at the the historical facts but he can spin that narrative because of the fact that for most people they haven't got any ways of telling whether it's true or not and they don't care whether it's true or not because it's not part of who they are it's not part of their political memories but i think that that shows is that in principle corbyn understands he there is a line of attack on him that could work with certain people but it simply has got a barrier in terms of age in terms of making anyone making serious political capital out of it so just to be clear so the world changed it's not the other possibility which is that he is an unusual politician though there are more of them around at the moment donald trump would be another in that though he's a career politician he was never a career politician in the sense he was never like almost anyone else who becomes leader of one of the major parties plotting their way through politics thinking about what they were doing thinking about how it might come back to haunt them and so on he was in a sense he had a free hand he was a campaigning backbench mp with a very clear ideological perspective who never in a million years thought that he would be leader of the labor party and is there any sense in which the voters or the public kind of take that on trust that this is someone who is not accountable for the attitudes that he struck or the positions he took before he became leader because he's not like the others I think there's a lot of truth to that. And if you look at the campaigns Corbyn's been involved with, they're all campaigns that have significant labour movement involvement and reach out to a broader constituency beyond the labour movement. That's why there were various controversies about his activities in the Stop the War Coalition, because the Stop the War Coalition involves a lot of people who really don't like the state of Israel. And that's where these controversies about Corbyn maintaining friendly relations with people who are very credibly accused of various nasty forms of anti-Semitism come from. In this case, I think the obvious context is the European peace movement in the 1980s, that CND was large in the early 1980s. There was also the END movement. There were various campaigns that Corbyn was very much involved with. Some of them had links to Soviet bloc governments, because the Soviet bloc was keen to promote peace, was, was keen to, that cruise missiles not be deployed in the United Kingdom and so on. And I generally get the sense from Corbyn that he's always been willing to listen to people who will give him the time of day as he talks about his campaigns and as he tries to build a broader coalition for his operations as he can. Now, the question is, in doing that, did he 
compromise himself or the campaigns he was involved in to any great extent. And the sense I get is that on the whole, he didn't, that he's very good at playing this game of running quite broad coalitions and keeping them together. And the idea that he's some kind of traitor or spy seems absurd. He wouldn't actually have known anything you couldn't get from reading the newspapers. No one ever gave him access to state secrets or anything like that. But as a backbencher with a lot of time on his hands, I would have thought that it's fairly clear why East European diplomats, in inverted commas, might have wanted to talk to him. But it's not obvious there's anything especially sinister about that. And to go back to the thought about how it was all a long time ago, it's very striking that a lot of the coverage of this episode explicitly references John le Carre novels, which is a way of reminding us that this is a long-lost Amelia. This is Amelia we now have access to through fiction, television, cinema, not something that's part of our day-to-day political experience. And that's part of why, in the absence of anything looking like a smoking gun, and there absolutely isn't anything looking like a smoking gun, it's going to do no damage to him at all. So in the press coverage, there are sort of two modes to it. There is the, the headline tabloid mode about spies and so on. And then there's the sort of reflective or more reflective op-ed mode, which would be Matthew Danconi or Daniel Finkelstein, people like that, who want to say, well, it shouldn't be ancient history. The reason it matters is not because he might have been betraying his country, but because of the attitudes that it reflects, the deep sympathies that it reflects. This was a man who was deeply sympathetic to the Soviet project, and the Soviet project was a human and political catastrophe, and therefore it really matters that we think hard about the possibility of having as Prime Minister not someone who might have betrayed his country, but someone whose view of the world is so skewed from fundamental democratic values. Does that have any sticking power for either of you? I think it has sticking power with people who already think that. And <laughs> That's the problem with politics at the moment. That's true of almost every argument on any issue. And I think that if you look back at who he was in those years... I think that he spent a lot of time on foreign policy questions and the Irish question. I was thinking about what my first memory of Jeremy Corbyn was, and I think, I can't be really clear about these things, but I, I think it was when he was getting arrested for protesting about the the Brighton bombing trial. And I was thinking, well, what else Which was... Which he described as a show trial. ...going on at the time, around the time. There was a minor strike. I don't really remember Corbyn in the minor strike. I may have amnesia in this, this case. But he didn't really... In least in my memory anyway, he didn't particularly associate himself with the great domestic causes of the 1980s for the left. He was doing something in some sense which was much more singular than that. And as I say, and I think this is where the, the argument that he showed a consistent tendency to be pretty supportive of the enemies of the West, so to speak, to use that language of, of the Cold War, is true. But I still think that for the generation that... The Cold War is just something to read out about in a history book, if that, or watch a television drama about, that that doesn't cut it. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't cut it is, is because this whole bigger question about what the Soviet Union was about, including you know, the, the terrible loss of life that happened in the, in the Soviet Union, is simply, it's not hardwired into our political culture in the way in which the evils of Nazism, for instance, are. So I think that you can get a pass on the kinds of things that Finkelstein and Dancona think you shouldn't get a pass on. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic to their view that you shouldn't, but the political reality is you can. There's also something else, which is that 
in terms of foreign policy, Corbyn has these deeply anti-interventionist instincts, but he's not making the running on this. Rather, the hyperactive Blair government destroyed the public's tolerance for a highly interventionist foreign policy. And Corbyn's reaping part of the political reward for that. But it was the government's overreach with especially the Iraq war that's created the conditions where the British voting public doesn't have much time for politicians who who want to bomb places, who want to invade places, who want to change regimes around the world. And Corbyn's reaping the electoral harvest of that. But I don't think he did that much to... You know, he was active in the Stop the War, but I think the Stop the War coalition is, is not what's important here. It's the the ordinary turn of public opinion against politicians like like Blair, who um, put all their eggs in the basket of uh, an activist foreign policy. In the short film we put out on YouTube last night, it's only about 90 seconds long, it's this, it seems to be characteristic Corbyn mix of the new politics with the old politics. That is, the new politics sounds weirdly like the 1980s, in that he's saying on the one hand, this stuff doesn't mean anything in any way, the stuff that's being peddled through the tabloids doesn't count in an age of YouTube and Facebook. And we showed that in the last election. Kind of that way of doing smear media politics is dead. And on the other hand, these terrible people who run these newspapers, these press barons who avoid paying their taxes, are the secret powers behind the throne in this country. And we are going to take them down and change is coming. So simultaneously, these people don't count. And these people are the secret dark forces at work in this country. That second bit sounds very 1980s. The first bit sounds very 2018, because we went through an election where they did all of this. And it turned out that actually the person who suffered in that election was Theresa May, because on Facebook, people sharing stories of dead elephants did her way more harm than anything that anyone could say about Jeremy Corbyn in relation to, never mind whether there are any photographs of it, the things he might have done in the 1980s. So I'm struggling to kind of put the two bits of this together is he saying the press barons are the enemy or is he saying the press barons don't matter anymore I mean I know you can think both but where's the emphasis in this I think there is both there and that's what matters that to a certain extent the Corbyn project marks a sharp break with new labor but from another point of view what's going on under Corbyn is taking further some things that were tried out under Ed Miliband's leadership and under Miliband the party in the end went to war with the Daily Mail But they never engaged in a general attack on the tabloids across the board. Miliband cultivated quite good uh, relations with The Sun, for example. They didn't reward him for it, but he wanted to be their friend. But I think what you're seeing is the sense among Corbyn and the people around him that the time has come to, to broaden that campaign. Five years ago, it was just the mail. Now it's the mail and the sun and the express. Well, no one reads the express. And um, by implication, the Telegraph and the Times too. And the Times. And I think it, it's significant that partly you've got an ideologically more confident Labour Party, partly you've got a Labour Party that's doing better in the polls, partly you've got more social media and other networks that are happy to circulate criticism of the, the mainstream media. But as you say, also, the press barons are weaker than they were, and that's why you can launch a broader assault on them than hitherto. I think there's another thing here, and that is, is it goes back to a point that Chris made about New Labour. And I think you know, the central context of the Corbyn project, or the project around Corbyn, is the repudiation of New Labour. It is claiming the Labour Party back from what happened to it under Blair's leadership. And if you go back to the 1980s, so the years before Blair, the right-wing press was a 
a favoured phrase in the left in this country, in the same way in which Thatcher saw the trade unions or the miners in particular as the enemy within the left, saw the right wing press, I think, as the enemy within. Yeah, and that's exactly what I mean when I say the new yeah. politics sounds so yeah, like yeah. the 1980s. Yeah, absolutely. And in, so repudiating New Labour, which, as we know, got very close to a number of these newspapers who are now under attack, including The Sun and Blair's own then relationship with Murdoch, is to go back to saying, look, the Labour Party was hijacked by Blair and co, is to go back to this line of attack and say there was a concentration of power in this country around a certain part of the media and it needs to be destroyed. And as part of this, I mean, this goes back to the accidental thing, it's not just Corbyn, but it's quite hard to see him, Miliband as a career politician, as a product of the Blair-Brown years, Totally, you could see how he could calculate how you might play one paper off against the other and cultivate some relationships against others. He's a he's a player in that world. It's really hard to imagine Corbyn, Seamus Milne, John McDonnell cultivating any of these people or indeed wanting to be cultivated by any of these people. The, the, the happy accident for them is they don't really have a choice here. I mean, I don't think the Corbyn project makes any sense as one that plays the sun off against the male. It's just this guy happens now to be leader of the Labour Party there's nowhere else to go except for him to attack all of them and be attacked by all of them. It's just the fact of the situation we're in. That's right. And one of the reasons some of the criticism of Corbyn looks fairly weak is that it is simply, you know, we have seen it all before. And the front page of The Sun talking about put Corbyn in the bin or whatever it was the day before the election is, you know, will remind people who are old enough to remember of the, you know, will the last person to leave Britain if Kinnock wins turn out the lights? front page that the tabloids are on autopilot just repeating the same kinds of things they used to do but with increasingly diminishing returns for for various reasons but when you do the same thing again and again and again in general you get a, a less impressive reaction each time talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So just to broaden this out a bit, and this isn't just about Corbyn, though, mate, we'll, we'll come back to Corbyn. The other thing that's been going on in British politics and media in the last two to three weeks, particularly, is if this is the right word for it, a much more successful flexing of the muscles. This doesn't start in the tabloids, it actually starts with the Times, but it's certainly been picked up by the Mail, which is an attack on the NGO world, the world of aid, the Oxfam story, which has now spread to save the children and many others. This is very much, in a sense, the new politics, because it's not about treason and big ideological battles. It's about moral standards and behaviour. It's about colonial attitudes. It, as it were, cuts across left-right, because one of the reasons I think the attack on Oxfam has had such force is that it's very hard for people from different ideological positions to object to the attack, because it picks up on a whole series of things that people think are wrong with the way the world is currently organised. But it has come from, it started with a story in the Times, it has been very much led not by new media and not, say, by the BBC, 
but by the power of the press. There is clearly an agenda here, though I'm not totally sure I understand what the agenda is. It has something to do with politics, and there is, between the Labour Party, but also not just the Labour Party, a kind of revolving door now between the NGO world and the world of parliamentary politics, so that the most recent version of this, the attack in the mail on Brendan Cox, the widower of Joe Cox, and the, you know, the terrible situation that he's found himself in. Tell me what's going on here, because this is not, in a sense, calling Corbyn a spy shows the weakness of old media. But this story has been a remarkable flexing of their strength, I think. My hunch is that what, and this is a guess, but my hunch is what they're going after is the government commitment to put... 0.7% of GDP into foreign aid spending. That became Conservative Party policy when Cameron was leader of the opposition before he went into government. Peter Lilly chaired a commission, a review inside the Conservative Party looking at aspects of their overseas development policy. They cultivated very good relations with a number of the big charities who were involved in the consultations over this, and Cameron committed himself to that target, and he stuck to it right through the years of austerity, when lots and lots of Conservatives were all on board for austerity, but thought that the first thing you should cut is overseas aid. And I wonder whether that's the totem that's being assaulted here, that just as when we were talking about Corbyn a moment ago, it's a story of how the party detoxifies itself from the mess that it got into during the long New Labour period. And so symbolically, you go back to a pre-New Labour politician, you have to go back to a politician from the 1980s to carry out that project effectively. Miliband couldn't do it. But similarly, in the Conservative Party, there's an awful lot of people who want to repudiate the things that Cameron was associated with. And one of the things Cameron was associated with was a more public, intense commitment to overseas aid than... We're used to from Conservative politicians. And, and you say they, but if we're talking here about the people who own these newspapers, why do they care about that issue so much? I get why people in the Conservative Party might want to repudiate Cameronism, Cameroonianism, whatever it was called, but w- w- what's in it for the Barclay brothers? It, it perhaps starts where Chris says, but I think it, it runs deeper. And my hunch is, is that what's going on here is that the, let's call it, the Brexit-supporting media class, though the Times, I think, is in a bit more complicated relationship in relation to that, understands that the, let's call it, the anti-Brexit political class has been fighting back. I'm not sure that it's going to... In fact, I doubt that it's going to win this battle, but it's been thinking that it's been establishing some momentum for itself around the second referendum. And I think that that consensus between you know the Blairite part of the Labour Party or indeed parts of the soft left of the Labour Party as well as the Blairite part and the Cameron part of the Conservative Party, something like that. What Osborne now represents was in pretty much the same position over this both policy in regards to the non-governmental sector, the charity sector and the revolving door aspect of it. Both the Labour Party and Cameron's Conservative Party were pretty close to Save the Children and had people in and out of those jobs. I mean, I think Brendan Cox himself went from working for Brown to working for Save the Children. And the photos today in the paper are of the now semi-disgraced former head of Save the Children and Andrew Mitchell, yeah. the former development secretary, the Tory development secretary. And so I think... Himself also disgraced. I think Every, that attacking disgraced. the sanctimony and to some degree hypocrisy around this is very much in the interests of the... Brexit supporting media, if we're going to call it that. I mean, these are quite simplistic labels and it's obviously more complicated than, than that. But this is a 
this is a weakness, I think, of the, the political class that is very committed to trying to reverse Brexit because underneath it is a, is a can of worms about their own material self-interest in relation to the revolving door and the, the claim to moral sanctimony, sometimes in rather hypocritical ways that these kind of people represent. And that's what I was going to say. It's a theme that I often think about and I've talked about a bit on this podcast, which is the reason that the Corbyn attacks don't work is that what really gives something like this teeth is to be able to paint people as sanctimonious hypocrites and that's not what Corbyn is in relation to the former Soviet Union he may be many things but he's not a sanctimonious hypocrite about it this is absolutely an attack on a form of sanctimony and particularly elitist sanctimony and that in our politics across the board but doesn't matter from which it's side it's the thing that it's self-serving as well but as I say because of the revolving door aspect of it it isn't even what just, the sanctimony yeah, itself it is because it's or it, the attack it, itself because it, the attack is self-serving yeah, no, it, what I mean is is that there is an element of the language of moral sanctimony to it but using that moral language also has advanced the material interests of a number of people so if I could ask one more question on this and then I want to come on to Europe and we'll come back to Ireland through Europe and back to Corbyn through Ireland. That's how it works. Is the Labour Party more vulnerable? So this, I, I think Helen's completely right. In a sense, this is an attack on the centre, whatever that is. But something else that's been rumbling through coverage of the Labour Party this week is in relation to what's a, a sort of small technical internal question about an election to a post within the Labour Party, the National Policy Forum, but an allegation of bullying, the bullying of a woman by a man, a, a trade unionist as it happens. And these kinds of allegations have mildly swirled around the Corbyn project from the beginning. And certainly these are the sorts of allegations that are fueling some of the attacks on the aid sector. You know, some of it is obviously that the Oxfam case is a completely different thing, but some of the accusations against the chief executives, the male chief executives, to do with forms of sexism and also forms of bullying. In our politics, in the new politics, is the Labour Party much more vulnerable to, never mind who's a traitor or who was going to sell the country secrets to the Soviets, is the Corbyn project actually more vulnerable to those kinds of attacks? I mean, those have been rumbling around the Corbyn project, but nothing has ever really stuck, and maybe that's because there is nothing to stick. But is the Labour Party vulnerable there? I don't think you can make a big deal out of things going on at a National Policy Forum event. This for Labour people is inside baseball and it's very difficult to get a wider public much interested in these kinds of internal goings-on. And a bit of pushing and shoving in politics is not news. That's not news. And go back to the general election, part of the attack on Corbyn was about aspects of sexism, about not appointing enough women into top posts in the shadow cabinet, having some kind of boys' culture around him in the leader's office, and so on and so on and so on. And then women turned out to vote for Corbyn in large numbers. You're going to get a replay of something like that dynamic here, that there's going to be a lot of people in particular associated with the Blair wing of the Labour Party who will be loudly denouncing what they see as bad behaviour from some of Corbyn's supporters. But it is really unlikely to make much political capital. And the people who make loud noises will themselves be denounced for trying to draw attention to um, inner-party ructions when they should be taking the fight to the Tories and so on. So I think this will be another replay of the stories we've seen again and again and again since Corbyn became leader. Um, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, and I don't think it's going to dent Corbyn's popularity with women voters. I think that where it is going to have an impact, and I think you can start to see it already, is in the parliamentary party, because I think that there's a, a kind of uneasy peace between the Corbyn 
the people around Corbyn and the majority of the parliamentary party who at best tolerate him. And I think that they will use the incidents, kind of incidents that happened at the the weekend in internal manoeuvring within the party. And it may, over time, if we get accumulation of them, set off another, not necessarily full-scale rebellion. In fact, I don't think it would be a full-scale rebellion like we saw in, in 2016. But the uneasy peace that has broken out in the parliamentary party will become increasingly strained, I think, over this kind of issue. Presumably there is also the potential for this to get worse if we do move to that deselection phase of the Corbyn project. I mean, that there is the, the ideological aspect of that, but there's also the pushing and shoving aspect of that. And there must at least be the possibility that the inside baseball spreads a bit further if members of the parliamentary party get deselected, particularly women, in very hostile circumstances. I'll believe it when I see it. The amount of froth and hysteria surrounding everything to do with momentum set against what's actually happened, the gulf is so vast there are lots of reasons why even in the absence of something like momentum there would have been a pushback against the councillors in Haringey and so on that I'm inclined to wait and see if anything does happen. It may be that some new Labour MPs in inner London seats in areas where, in studenty areas where momentum is strong and well organised will end up deselecting people. There's nothing really in the grand scheme of things that should concern us about that. That's to say, it's completely normal in America that politicians should fight a primary before they fight the general election. It seems weird that there should be an automatic entitlement for politicians to get the nomination to fight their seat again. This is an ordinary part of democratic politics that you select your candidates. And I don't think deselections are likely to be extensive And then we'll see one or two very high-profile cases where people start flinging around charges that people are being targeted for bad reasons or because they're women and so on. And some of those will get very messy, and these are the kinds of political contests that do get very messy. But we've had so much froth and hype about what these momentum revolutionaries are going to do that I think there are very strong reasons for calming down until they actually do anything, because so far they haven't. I think that this has got a bit more potential than Chris thinks. And I think that it's particularly on the question of women's position in the party. Now, I think that some of the times that this can get bound up in what Chris would say is quite reasonably in a way, particularly over Haringey, was a kind of hysteria, near hysteria anyway, about momentum and what seemed pretty legitimate criticisms of the Haringey Labour leader were turned into being a priori misogynist. But I think when you've got images going around social media of a woman getting pushed on the platform by a man, as happened in what happened at the, at the weekend, and then you have a senior woman in the party like Emily Thornbury going on Sunday morning television politics shows and pretty much defending it or saying there was nothing to see here would be a better way of putting that. And you put this in the context of some of the remarks that John McDonald's made, is, is over time it kind of opens Jeremy Corbyn and the project around him up to the same charge of hypocrisy, that he's very keen on attacking other people for over questions about the treatment of women and that inside the Labour Party a different set of standards apply. And as we said a few moments ago in a different context, 
hypocrisy does cost people in politics. Let's finish with Europe. Oh, that was a disagreement, by the way. So that's good. <laughs> that was a genuine disagreement. <laughs> you look quite cross. <laughs> <laughs> I like disagreements on yeah. the podcast. Me too. So let's see if we can get another one going. Europe. So the other thing that um, people have been saying for a while now is that when the Corbyn project is going to come under real pressure is when the leader himself and John McDonnell have to take a position on Brexit that they can't fudge or get away from. They've got to say where they stand. There's been, for a while now, in, in the way that, and again, I'm taking this from the old media, the way that some columnists and others have been briefed from it, with inside the Labour Party, a sense that it's a mistake to think that Corbyn is ideological about Europe, that a lot of people who would like Labour to take a softer position on Brexit, believe that he's actually a pragmatist on this, that he's avoiding the issue because he doesn't want to be pinned down. He goes through Prime Minister's questions every week without mentioning it, simply because he would prefer not to talk about it, not because he has things he's dying to say and he doesn't dare say them. And that they're confident, this would be the sort of Keir Starmer view, they're confident that over time he will come much closer to a position which clearly distinguishes Labour from the Tories and places Labour at least potentially in a space where they can appeal to people who are unhappy about Brexit. So he gave a speech again, I think this was last night, and we're talking about Wednesday morning, so when this goes out a couple of nights ago, in which he made it clear that he thinks that there will need to be some kind of customs union in whatever deal that we come up with. Britain has to be part of something that looks like a customs union. But I think the reason he gave was that there cannot be a hard border in Ireland. And that, to me, is not pragmatic. That, for Corbyn, is ideological in the sense that I can just about imagine him as prime minister and Britain still has nuclear weapons, so he would never fire them. I cannot imagine him as prime minister of a state whose security forces are required to uphold a hard border in Ireland. That, to me, for him, must be complete anathema. That must be a bigger issue than his long-term aversion to the European Union as a kind of capitalist plot against the workers. Because I agree with Helen, at root thing that Corbyn starts from in politics is the Irish question. I, I don't think I really disagree with what you're saying at all. I think the question of Corbyn's attitude towards the European Union over the long term is one of the hardest questions to answer about him. Because clearly he had a, a record of, I think he voted pretty much against everything that ended up in the, in the House of Commons, certainly treaty-wise. And he had the position that what was then called the hard left in the Labour Party adopted, which was to be anti the European Union. And his great mentor in politics, or his great friend in politics, Tony Benn, was somebody who was very strongly opposed to the European Union. Now, it always struck me that there was a side of that that Corbyn adopted from Benn, which was the European Union as as basically a capitalist club and impeding the possibility of socialism in Britain. And there was a side of it from Ben that Corbyn had no real interest in, which was the constitutional side of it, its position in relation to English history. Now, I think that Corbyn has expressed some enthusiasm at times for the levellers. I think at one point I saw him say that John Lilburn, who was a Puritan leveller, was his favourite ever politician. But he doesn't have that historical mindset about these things that, that Ben had. And you know, Ben and Enoch Powell's views on the European Union were pretty much indistinguishable from each other in this respect. And indeed, I believe that the two of them maintained a friendship for until Enoch Powell 
um, died. Now, you can never imagine in a million years Corbyn maintaining a friendship with Enoch Powell or saying that Corbyn's views about the European Union were pretty similar to Enoch Powell. So it seems to me that he's got long-standing history on this, but ultimately he doesn't have deep conviction about it in the way in which Ben did. So I think he's got the possibility of being more pragmatic about it. Having said that, I think it's also clear that he does understand, perhaps better than others around him, is that the difficulties that Labour would get into by effectively repudiating the referendum result. And I think, ironically, he's now the kind of triangulator, something that you know, if you wanted one way of summing up what the New Labour project was as a style, it was triangulation. And now we've got Jeremy Corbyn as the great triangulator on the European Union and Tony Blair presenting himself as the, the great conviction politician on Britain must stay in the European Union. So we're in a very strange place in this respect. But I do think that he's got the capacity to be more flexible than might seem. But at the same time, that partly because he doesn't have deep convictions about it, I think either way that he will think about it primarily in political terms. It does also raise that old New Labour question, which is, is the Shadow Chancellor actually the one who's calling the shots on this? As people said about Blair and Brown, is it actually John McDonnell's attitude that matters most here? I certainly agree with Helen that Corbyn doesn't seem to be so interested in those issues of sovereignty. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Corbyn, that he was always interested in foreign policy and foreign affairs and human rights campaigns and and so on, and not so interested in the domestic machinery of the British state. On the a hard border in Ireland, yes, obviously Corbyn would be very keen to avoid that, but there is a, an easy policy he can adopt, which is to have the customs frontier in in the Irish Sea that Mrs May can't contemplate because she's dependent on DUP votes. But it's very hard to see a Corbyn government propped up by Ulster Unionists in anything like the same way. So that wouldn't be be an obstacle. And that, I think, would fit in with uh, Corbyn's desire to see a more integrated Ireland, a more integrated Irish economy, and perhaps barriers between Ireland and and the United Kingdom as a prelude to reunification. On John McDonnell, though, yes, he's interested in a lot of old approaches to economic policy making. People around him are reaching back to Labour policy approaches from the 1970s and the 1980s. But even McDonnell, I think, isn't straightforward to paint as an old anti-Europe dinosaur. One of the events he was involved in not so long ago was from people who were going through the Labour Party manifesto to show that just about everything in the Labour Party manifesto up from last time is fully compatible with current European rules about state aid and so on. So there's a push from Lexiters, from people who want a, a left-wing exit from the European Union, to argue that an awful lot of what a Corbyn government would want to do is not permitted by European Union rules. And there are some bits of European jurisprudence, like the, the Viking ruling that aren't friendly to trade union rights. But in the grand scheme of things, there really isn't much that would come from Europe to block whatever it is that a Corbyn government would want to do. And people in McDonald's office, I think, increasingly accept that, have been talking to the people who've been making that case. And it's not obvious that they'd be doing that if what they were doing was simply trying to buttress the case for for British exit. I think McDonald tends that way, certainly. And I think Corbyn tends that way, although I don't think he was much interested in the British relationship for the European Union once the Maastricht Treaty had gone through. He didn't become a zealot on this issue. He rather shut up about it. He did vote against Lisbon. So I think he's, broadly speaking, he's pragmatic and wants to position the Labour Party in 
such a way that it can do maximum damage to the Conservative Party while leaving his options open. And we saw that in the recent remark about the customs union. He didn't say it's Labour's policy to stay in the customs union. He said that, you know, he thought there should be some kind of customs union, but he continues to talk a language of you know, keeping options on the table. And how far can triangulation go through the Brexit negotiations, right the way up to the next general election? I think it can go a long way. I mean, we've had the pro-Remainers in the Labour Party repeatedly saying that, you know, he has to make his mind up, the rubber, you know, the rubber hits the road, he can't stay on the fence forever, and so on. And they keep saying he has to make his mind up, and then he remain, keeps this policy of public ambiguity and then he seems to do rather well out of it and it seems to me he has earned the benefit of the doubt at this stage that there may come a point at which the Labour Party's deliberately cultivatedly ambiguous stance starts to damage it but I don't think there's any reason to think we're we're anywhere near to it just yet. The people who are criticising it aren't criticising it because they've got a well-worked-out case of why it's bad politics. They're criticising it because they want the Labour Party to turn itself into the Remain campaign from 2016. But Corbyn has very good reasons for not wanting to turn the Labour Party into the Remain campaign from 2016, partly because it lost. So last question, to go back to where we started, we've touched on it along the way. John Gray also said this in the interview we did for this podcast with him, which is the thing that the Corbyn Project reminds him of is the thing that the Corbyn Project is designed to repudiate, which is the Blair Project. That is not just the triangulation, but the fact that actually the pragmatism may almost be total, that this is about getting into power. The other bit of it, the bit that reminds me of the Blair Project, is that Though Corbyn no doubt once was and maybe still is an ideological politician, he doesn't talk the language of ideology. He talks the language of good intentions. He talks the language of meaning well. So on the big questions like his attitude to Ireland, his relations with the Soviets and so on, he's the the man who was seeking peace. He was out there doing his best in the way that Blair said of the Iraq war that the one thing that people couldn't say against him was that he wasn't trying to do the thing that he thought was the right thing. The ideology, though, I think... Again, Blair and foreign policy, it was deeply ideological in many ways. The ideology is stripped out, and what you get is a mixture of the politics of good intentions and triangulation and pragmatism. Now, that, to me, is the thing that Corbyn and Blair have in common, and it runs pretty deep, actually. The thing that he is, obviously on substantive things, he is doing the opposite of Blair. But in terms of political style and technique, the person he reminds me of is Blair. Of course it's hard to imagine Corbyn heading the repressive state apparatus of the British press that will continue to deport people, imprison people, and so on. If he becomes Prime Minister, it's going to be a role that in lots of ways suits him very awkwardly. It would seem to me in those circumstances that he'd be best placed off trying to do not that much and allowing departmental ministers to build up their profile and build up their agenda and enjoy exercising power in the service of the goals they're pursuing. Okay, that, and that wouldn't be Blair. And that wouldn't, be, absolutely, that wouldn't be Blair. Blair got into a mess because he really did want to make his good intentions manifest and do things and invade countries and use the military and so on. And I think Corbyn could easily get into a great big mess if he thinks his number one priority as Prime Minister is to have a transformative foreign policy and radically reshape aspects of the repressive British state. But I think this is where his pragmatism may very well win through, that that sense of responsibility to the party to keep it as a governing party, in which case remaining a reasonably popular figurehead 
in a government where the energy is coming from the ministers may be a sensible way to proceed. So he could be the Blair who succeeds? I think he's not Blair because I think he doesn't want to be Prime Minister. I think there's a, that's a huge difference in politics between a man with the ambition for power, which Blair had in absolute spades, and one I don't think who has it. And I think if you if you look at the way in which he spent his time, even since his, since he's become party leader, this is not a man who is spending all his waking hours devoted to trying to become Prime Minister in the way in which Blair, I think, was, is that there is still some sense in which Jeremy Corbyn is a vessel and he's a vessel for a very deep discontent within the left in this country about what happened to the Labour Party under Tony Blair's leadership. I think that it's gone now in that discontent has turned itself into a political phenomenon that Corbyn himself, I think, couldn't have imagined when he when he started um, on this. But I, I do think that McDonnell is the person who's probably more significant to where this ends up going over the next few years than Jeremy Corbyn himself. Just to end, I should say, I once asked someone who was very close to the Labour project under Tony Blair, what was the philosophical essence of Blairism, that question that we started with? In, in the mystery of Tony Blair, what was the bedrock position from which everything else followed? And this person told me that that was at least an easy question to answer. The philosophical essence of Blairism was that Gordon Brown should never be Prime Minister and everything else followed from that. So sometimes if you ask the question, you don't get the answer that you're hoping for. So next week, we're going to be talking to Ed Miliband, who we mentioned in passing. I think I described him as a player in this episode. Actually, what he is now is a podcaster, um, as well as someone who once could have been Prime Minister. And maybe, who knows? Who knows? But we will be talking to him not just about podcasting. We'll actually be talking to him about politics next week. So do please join us for that. Do follow us on Twitter at TPPodcast underscore. If you like this podcast and you'd like to rate us on iTunes, that would be great. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. I would love to. I don't suppose yeah. he kept a diary. I mean, I don't mean. I mean, even had a diary of when he was doing when. But it, I mean, his his schedule of the nineteen eighties must have just been a demonstration a meeting of the, some small number of people in the House of Commons mm-hmm. and writing speeches for the Venezuela Solidarity. Yeah, campaign. they don't write themselves. Actually, after a point, they do. <laughs> I think there's a bot for that now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>